Hello and welcome to the February 2009 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Alyssa Neller. And this month we'll take a look at medical education. First, we'll hear how we're training the doctors of the future. Then we'll talk to some medical students who are learning that science is a process of discovery, not a form of revealed truth. Plus, researchers develop a new approach to prevent the spread of herpes virus. But first, I had a chance to chat with Thomas Michel, Dean for Education here at HMS. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. really appreciate it. My pleasure. I want to shake things up a little bit for this interview. So I actually went out into the city to find out what Bostonians wanted to know about medical education, and they came up with some great questions. So let's just dive right in. Uh, a lot of people wanted to know how we teach compassion to the doctors of tomorrow. So here are two of their questions. Kathy Warren Roslindale, are you teaching the doctors people skills? Like example myself, I find myself maybe sometimes shy not to ask a certain question, or I feel embarrassed not to ask a certain question, so I don't ask it. Patricia Ozdemir, and I'm a med tech in the immunology lab at Brigham and Women's. Um, I would like to know if they're teaching the students communication and compassion skills. These are really good questions, and they're questions that I think we have to continue to ask ourselves. And a fundamental component of the art of medicine is being able to understand the broader context of a patient's illness. So is it fair to say that compassion is really a core of the curriculum here? Without a doubt. I think that uh, one wants to have cultural competency as well as scientific competency. One has to have compassion as well as understanding. The understanding needs to be at all levels in order to be an effective clinician. Can you just give one example of one of the ways that you would? Well, sure, of course. I think that uh, we start off actually with a two-week introduction to the profession, which is a fairly intense time exposing the students to a wide variety of topics. But central among those topics is enhancing the student's understanding of what it means to be a physician, what responsibility one has to patients, to society, and more broadly than simply the content of a specific approach to a disease or the causes. And is there a lot of mentoring? As far it's as direct mentoring. It's direct modeling of behavior. Cultural competence is something that informs everything from our preclinical courses to our advanced electives. So this is a core value. It's a core component of the curriculum, and we're constantly trying to understand how we can most effectively communicate and teach those skills and assess our students for having obtained them. One of the other questions that came up was how you encourage students to broaden their perspective beyond just focusing on <clears throat> taking tests and, and graduating and all of that. How do you actually get them to look outside of, of themselves and the school? And um, here's a question. Frederick Vetterlein, I live in JP. Uh, how do you get them to see life rather than just their career as a process of learning? How do you get them to test themselves, to take a break, um, despite being under the pressure to be successful and to accomplish things and to pay off their debts and all the things that go along with becoming a professional? How do you get them to just see outside of that, to look around them? And they need a hobby. <laughs> well, I think that's a great question and a great perspective. Uh, I think that we're fortunate in being able to select for admission to Harvard Medical School truly 
outstanding uh, young men and women who have gone beyond test preparation and have been engaged in life. I understand that you're encouraging all of the students to do a special project. That's right. One of the programs that we're planning to uh, introduce within the next few years uh, is a requirement that the students become engaged in an in-depth project. For some students, that might be a research project at the bench, uh, making a new discovery at the molecular or cellular level. For other students, this project might be their engagement in a community health project that they can then describe and evaluate and and, uh, share with their fellow students uh, and faculty and with the community at large. And whether it's at the bench or in the field, whether it's in Boston or in Zimbabwe, we are encouraging students to get broadly engaged, to ask questions, and to explore issues in depth. And we're hopeful that this, in combination with the rest of what I think is a very robust and engaging curriculum for the students uh, will uh, enable them to be lifelong learners. That really is our goal is to encourage students to go beyond what they simply learn in medical school and to continue to have the curiosity uh, and engagement with new knowledge that will make them effective uh, physicians throughout their lives. So the final question actually uh, plays off of this point that you just made about being lifelong learners. And let me just play you the question. Sure. My name is Jan Szymborski. I live in Charlestown, and I have the following question. I wonder that, considering the vast amount of information that's out there, what those poor guys should be learning about? (laughs) Well, uh, that's a question I'm sure our students are asking themselves, and I can also (laughs) avow that the teachers ask that as well. We don't view medical school as the be-all and end-all of the communication of new information in the science and art of medicine. We view medical school as providing a deep understanding into what it means to be a professional, uh, what it means to be a physician, what it means to be a caregiver, what it means to advance knowledge and to try and train leaders who will be able to carry forth that mission into whatever they do. And we very much want to have our students leave here knowing that there's a lot to learn. There's the popular observation that when students graduate from medical schools that half of of what they've learned is incorrect and the, and the problem is that their teachers really don't know which half that is. <laughs> so that really brings uh, brings us to a conclusion that whatever they learn they'll need to continue to learn uh, need to be open to new knowledge and information and to remain fully engaged with developments in their field. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Medical students have a lot to learn. One of the lessons is that research isn't easy. This is Carol Cruzan Morton with a special report on MD students venturing down the bumpy road of discovery. More than 100 Harvard medical students have gathered in a sun-drenched atrium. Today is dedicated to celebrating their research accomplishments. They stand in front of posters full of charts, graphs, and colorful images, eager to share the stories behind their research. Along the walls, stone statues of famous old scientists look out over the chattering young crowd. I approach one of the researchers. Hi, my name is Jordan Strom. I'm a uh, second-year medical student. And I was in the Philippines this past summer, sort of working with the national healthcare system. I actually was sort of interested in, in chronic disease and how chronic disease can be managed 
on a sort of national basis because it's it's a huge problem in both you know not only the Philippines but in the U.S. And so the idea is to say whether there are systems that can work on a national or international basis for managing chronic disease abroad. About half of all Harvard medical students spend the summer between their first and second years doing research in the lab or in the clinic. Some, like Strom, join international projects. One quarter of all the students take a full year or more doing extra research before they graduate. Some Harvard professors consider research a crucial part of a medical education. There is a really strong commitment to research at Harvard Medical School. At the same time, taking care of patients is also a primary goal of the school and of physicians, but I think trying to mix the two together to try to create the physician scientist who wants to do patient care, who understands patient care, who does patient care, but is also interested in doing research is, is viewed as an ideal by some of us. Terry Morados flyer is a Harvard researcher who sees patients at one of the school's affiliated hospitals, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She chairs a student research committee that planned today's research forum. She says research experience makes better doctors and that doctors do research that matters for patients. One of the things that's really true about medicine today as opposed to medicine in the past, even uh, 30 or 40 years ago, is that new knowledge develops at a fairly substantial rate. And in order to understand where new knowledge comes from and how good it is and how to evaluate it, you do need to have some experience with discovery. I spoke to one student researcher whose study was just published in the Journal of Neuroscience. My name is David Starks. I actually did a year of research in between my third and fourth years. So I'm finishing up my fourth year now, and I'm applying to residency programs in pediatric neurology. And so my research interests are in uh, brain development and um, behavioral neuroscience, you know, what makes us who we are. Stark first became interested in brain development from some research he did in college. For his current research project, he spent a year at the New York University Child Study Center to learn more about a new way of measuring brain function. The field that I'm working in, resting state neuroimaging, is a new modality of neuroimaging where you stick somebody in the scanner, but you don't give them a specific task. You let them rest, and I say that in quotes because they could be making mental to-do lists, they could be anxious about being in the scanner. point is we don't constrain their activity in the scanner. So uh, when I came to NYU, they had already gathered you know, many resting state scans, a lot of data from many patients, so the data is sitting there for someone like me to come along and think of how to put it to use. What Stark and his fellow researchers found is that both sides of the brain work together to see, to hear, and to gather other sensory information. The two halves of the brain also coordinate motor skills, such as walking and eating. But higher functions can happen almost exclusively on one side of the brain or the other. Stark thinks more research like this may someday help doctors understand and treat developmental disorders in kids. The problem with kids is it's very hard to know what's going on inside there. It's also very hard to test them. So if we had a method where we could just uh, stick a kid in the scanner and uh, find out how his or her brain is connected, that might help us follow that kid over time. You know, if a kid has had a traumatic brain injury, we can monitor prognosis following that injury by repeated scans over time, and maybe we can even say something about prognosis and in the future guide treatment. When Stark graduates, he will have an MD and research experience. Some students take the research a step further, pursuing a PhD in addition to their MD. 
the nice balance of MD-PhD is you get the short-term benefit as, as an MD of helping someone today. And as a PhD, you get the nice long-term benefit of maybe helping a lot of people in the future. And so the balance of that is kind of what I think draws a lot of us into MD-PhD. That is Sarah Henriksen. She took two years of medical school classes. Then she disappeared into the lab for five years to look at what factors control how fast and how hard immune cells fight germs and disease. So basically what I studied was trying to understand the different factors that control the speed of T-cell activation. Um, you could think of that as being important for, say, uh, vaccination. If we want to really understand how to design good vaccines, we need to understand how to get T-cells started and how to control the speed and the amplitude of that response. Henriksen will finish her clinical training in the next two years, and that medical training will make her a better researcher who may end up helping more patients. Murato's flyer says there will always be a place for medical students who want to do research. When you accept a group of students which really have extraordinary backgrounds and a skill set, you hope that some of them will want to do research, whether, again, it's, it's lab-benched research or clinical research or uh, community-based research, that they will feel that they want to contribute in a way that's more than you can do when you're taking care of patients one patient at a time, which is actually a very valuable and important and satisfying aspect of being a doctor. But you're only taking care of patients one at a time, and you're doing it on, on the basis of what's known. So if you can discover something new, it can potentially impact thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients at once. Let's face it. When it comes to sexually transmitted diseases, most of the prevention wisdom everything from abstinence to condoms, comes down to one thing. Keep that pathogen away from your body. While this obviously makes a lot of sense, it doesn't help that countless people worldwide who, for lots of different reasons, are not in a position to control their sexual circumstances. Now, Harvard Medical School Professor of Pediatrics Judy Lieberman, who is also a senior investigator at the Immune Disease Institute, has overseen the development of a topical treatment that, in mice, disables key genes necessary for herpes virus transmission. What's more, the treatment is just as effective when applied anywhere from one week prior to a few hours after exposure to the virus. Using a laboratory method called RNA interference, or RNAi, which is a fairly new tool that scientists use to handicap specific genes, the treatment cripples the virus in a molecular two-punch knockout. Not only does it disable the virus's ability to replicate inside the host tissue, but it even knocks out the host cell's ability to acquire the virus in the first place. In other words, once the virus gets in, it really can't do any damage, but it can't even get in. So far, this has only been demonstrated in mice, but Lieberman believes that these findings may one day be applied far beyond this study. We developed this method of preventing herpes as a proof of concept that could then be used more generally for other sexually transmitted viral infections. And there were three main viruses that are transmitted sexually, herpes, HIV, and human papillomavirus. And in principle, what we developed for herpes could be extended to prevent the transmission of each of those viruses. Currently, Lieberman and her lab are working hard to apply this method to HIV. 
concludes the February episode. I'll leave you with a quote from the Austrian physician and alchemist Paracelsus. The art of medicine cannot be inherited, nor can it be copied from books. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. Music for this episode was arranged by our colleague, John Ryan. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.